When the calendar flips over to a new year, regardless of how good or bad the past year was, there's a natural aspiration for the new year to be even better, with hopefulness and positive aspirations being the dominant sentiments, especially early on in the month of January. But truth be told that not only 2021 was a challenging year for both ASU football and basketball, but the prospects of the 2022 calendar year are probably not all that promising. Granted, this is only a projection, especially sitting here barely mid through the first month of the year. But nonetheless, in this episode of the Devil's Junkies podcast, we will review what has happened during the 2021 football season, as well as roughly the first half of the 21-22 basketball season, and give our projections at what we can expect this year for both programs to look like. And even though there are no shortage of hurdles for both programs to overcome, we will go ahead and analyze the prospects of both ASU football and basketball in a realistic rather than pessimistic manner. So thanks for tuning in. Let's get this thing started. I was living in a devil town. I didn't know it was a devil town. Oh, Lord, it really brings me down about the devil town. Welcome to the Devil's Junkies Podcast. I'm your host and devilsdidus.com publisher, Hode Rubino. And when we look at the 2021 ASU football season, you can point to one date and time, a very significant date that really changed the whole perception, the whole expectation of what we thought ASU football could be. That date, obviously, is uh, June 16th, 2021, where it did come to light that ASU is under NCAA investigation for alleged recruiting violations that took place earlier that year and even going back to the 2020 season. That is an investigation that is still going on as we speak. I don't expect this investigation to wrap up anytime soon as far as in the next month or two. And needless to say that that investigation changed everything in terms of the present and the future of ASU football. So when you look at the 2021 season, first and foremost, you point to that date that really changed everything, but also you take two different looks, at least in my opinion, as far as a macro look on the whole program as a whole, as well as a micro look at the 8-5 and five season by the Sun Devils, what went right, and more importantly, what went wrong. So let's um, maybe start with the micro view of ASU. And, and go- coming to this season, it was by far the most talented team, at least on paper, that I think we've seen here since the 1996 Rose Bowl team. And for the NCAA investigation to take place this year out of any other year, and I'm not saying there's ever a good timing for that, but when you look at a season that I'm not going to say really went down the drain, but a season that derailed even before fall camp started or really days into fall camp, because as you know, three assistant coaches, tight ends, coach Adam Brenneman, uh, who was put at place in Adam and leave even before fall camp started. And then just days into fall camp, uh, when you think like, okay, maybe I can only have one assistant coach on leave instead of multiple ones. Well, then the uh, notice comes down 
that wide receivers coach Prentice Gill and defensive backs coach Chris Hawkins are placed on admin leave as well. All three of them placed seemingly because of the very strong paper trail that was linked to their names and the alleged recruiting violations where university president Michael Crow felt that there was really no other way to handle this even early, early on in the process rather than put those three assistant coaches on leave. And here you are, a team where I thought could reach double-digit wins. I thought could win not only the South Division, but the Pac-12 as a whole. And when the season unfolded, you could see that those goals were still within reach. But I just feel that the three assistant coaches who've been put on admin leave, and no, I do not expect them to be back with the team, I don't know if it started a domino effect or a snowball effect, but really was the opening firing shot, if you will, of a season that just definitely did not go according to anybody's expectations. And for those that thought that the season was doomed right there, right then, I think your prediction really did come true because this is a team that was definitely capable of winning more than eight games. When you look at the record, what's even more frustrating is that only one of the eight wins that ASU had came against a winning team, and that was UCLA, which, by the way, finished with an identical uh, record, at least as far as number of wins in eight. I mean, even the uh, two two of the three non-conference teams that ASU played, Southern Utah and UNLV, won one and two games respectively. So you really didn't have many formidable opponents on the schedule that you were able to eventually beat. And I think that even that enhanced the hollow effect, if you will, of winning eight games or finishing second in the South Division that much more just because you really did not have that many impressive performances at all. I mean, you know, beating a USC, a USC team that ended up four and eight, that's simply not nothing to write home about. So really that one win on the road against UCLA was maybe some kind of spark of hope that ASU could perhaps at a minimum uh, win, win the South. And I don't think they really looked all that horrible at that point after that win against UCLA when you look at the body of work to that point because um, really the loss at BYU, I mean, sure, it was a loss the way ASU shot itself in the foot with numerous, numerous penalties, something that was a running theme the entire season. Uh, Obviously, turnovers, uh, dumb bad luck where linebacker Merlin Robinson uh, picks off the BYU quarterback and in his mad dash towards the end zone, gets the ball stripped out of his hand and recovered by BYU. So as frustrating as that loss was, it still was a non-conference loss. And here ASU goes on the road and beats UCLA, which was another team that was clearly contending for the South. So in the grand scheme of things, that was a more meaningful win. And really... I would I thought somewhat of a statement of ASU that it still could have the special season that myself and many others thought they could. And then two weeks later came another 
Pac-12 South road game at Utah, and we all uh, vividly remember the 21-7 advantage that ASU had at halftime. Uh, not a lot of teams come, come into Salt Lake City and do what ASU did. And even then, I would say that if you look at the film, it's not like ASU played a perfect first half by any means, but definitely were, especially on defense, very, very dominant. And uh, we know that second half, 28 unanswered points by the Utes gave ASU their then their second loss um, of the year. And that's where I think uh, maybe the snowball effect did start a little bit uh, because ASU goes on a bye, then loses, I think, the most frustrating loss of them all at home against uh, against Washington State, uh, a, a game that really ASU did not show up at all for, especially in the first half, trailing 28-7. to And even though in the second half, and something that really was a running theme, I would say along with the penalties as the defense playing lights out in the second half, but the offense just too little, too late in terms of their production. So if you had any hope that ASU could some way withstand the loss to Utah and maybe run the table the rest of the way and and still have a chance to win the Pac-12 South, I think that many of us, including myself, knew that after that loss to Washington State, ASU already with two Pac-12 losses at the end of the month of October was really out of contention to win to, to win the division. Um, they didn't really derail in terms of wins and losses from that point on. Uh, back-to-back wins against USC and against Washington, a loss at Oregon State, uh, a game that really uh, was... Uh, pitiful in terms of offensive performance, scoring only 10 points, and then uh, beating uh, U of A 38-15. A convincing win, obviously uh, nowhere close to the 70-7 win the the year before, but uh, really all that win gave ASU is just a better bowl placement, but not really uh, anything else beyond that, the, the postseason game was a loss to Wisconsin 20-13 in the Las Vegas Bowl. And that was a game, actually, that myself and many others probably thought that ASU was going to get blown out of the water. There were so many players who opted out or were just injured that could not play. Wisconsin were pretty much in full strength, definitely compared to what what the Sun Devils were. But uh, ASU uh, did did have a close loss, but obviously um, were just very challenged uh, personnel-wise in that game, and uh, that led to their fifth and last loss of, of the season. And even though this is a program that doesn't win eight games even on a regular basis or a semi, semi-regular basis, I think that I speak for all ASU fans that this was a disappointment, even with that NCAA uh, investigation cloud hanging over their head that uh, definitely the fan base at large still expected a better season, still expected the players and the coaches to let the off the field issues stay off the field and just let the sheer talent on the field really speak for itself. But uh, that never materialized for Arizona state in a very, very disappointing 2021 season. So what were the issues that really plagued this ASU team really prevented it from reaching its full potential? Well, 
anybody listening to what I've been saying, not only during the season, but really going back even to last spring when I'm talking about the number one element that was absolutely going to dictate ASU's fortune in the 2021 campaign was their passing game. Uh, it's no secret that the passing game definitely did take a step back when you compare it to, from 2019 to 2020. Yes, a new offensive coordinator, Zach Hill, being in place, trying to implement a more complex and creative system with the challenges of the coronavirus really limiting, first and foremost, off-season preparations, let alone cutting a season short to only four contests, really did a number on the passing game. We know the running game, even back in 2020, was really clicking on all cylinders, but the passing game was a whole different story. Unfortunately, 2021, when things were back to normal, as much as you can say, back to normal, but the off-season preparations were not postponed or disrupted by any means. ASU did play a full season. Everything seemed in place for this passing game to take the next step. And I didn't expect it to be a country mile better than what it was in 2020, but at least be good enough that it could balance an already established running game. And as we know, by and large, that simply did not happen at all. ASU, in their last five games of the season, including the ball games, failed to pass more than 200 yards. Uh, Really, the only impressive game they had during the season was against UCLA. Now, let's not forget that UCLA at the time was the fifth worst passing defense among OFBS programs. To ASU's credit, it did take advantage of that shortcoming and did pass for 287 yards. That ended up being the season high for the Sun Devils when it came to the passing game. But almost game in and game out, aside from that contest, uh, this passing game did very little to balance off what was a very impressive rushing game for ASU. So when it comes to the issues of the passing game, and this is something I discussed a lot on my premium message board, the Devil's Huddle, on my website, devilsdigest.com, I feel that there's something just not right in the relationship between offensive coordinator Zach Hill and quarterback Jaden Daniels. And I'm not here to put the blame more on one side than the other. I'm a big proponent that it does take two to tango as the adage goes. And I feel that both offensive coordinator and quarterback really have to find that common ground, really have to find the remedy to repair their professional relationship. Because you can't tell me that they're absolutely in sync, absolutely have a harmonious working relationship when you look at the results that we saw from the passing game nearly each and every Saturday. And this is something that has to be repaired in short order, something that we have to see in a couple of months during spring practice. Some flashes, some little signs that this passing game can indeed really perform at a high level show at least the potential to have some kind of an improvement. And it's a very curious landscape, if you will, when it comes to the passing game. As we know, offense creator Zach Hill was basically a foot and a half out of the door 
wanting to assume the offensive coordinator position at Auburn. And if it wasn't for Auburn really hitting the pause button very late in the process, I should add, just because ASU was under NCAA investigation, the Auburn basketball program was already under its own investigation and they didn't want to really raise red flags, if nothing else, from an optical standpoint, for lack of a better term, and hire a coach from a program under NCAA investigation while their own basketball program is under NCAA investigation. So that's what really derailed the whole hiring of Zach Hill. And I know Jaden Daniels wanted to stay here at ASU. Did he do it with the knowledge that Zach Hill was probably not going to be here and was off to Auburn? I mean, I don't know if you're really ever going to get a straight answer on that, but all I know is that you have a quarterback and a defensive coordinator that, in my opinion, were not on the same page, in my opinion, did not have the best working relationship, offensive coordinator to quarterback, and now they're both entering this 2022 season trying to open a brand new chapter, trying to turn to a brand new page. And maybe that's easier said than done. Uh, the proof is going to be in the pudding. Spring practice should show us some of that uh, advancement, if you will, of that relationship, showing us that this passing game can really play at a higher level. And whether that happens or not uh, still remains to be seen. But if some fans are pessimistic about that, just because they have seen a passing game that's really flatlined in 2020, flatlined in 2021, I really can't blame them for being pessimistic about 2022. So the onus is on both Hill and Daniels, in my opinion, to really right the ship over here. And again, to me, it's a two-sided problem. I think Zach Hill has to employ a scheme, a system that is more conducive to Jaden Daniels' strengths because I don't think that if he was trying to accomplish that in 2020 and 2021, that he did a good job necessarily in that regard. But at the same time, Jaden Daniels is a veteran quarterback. He is entering his fourth season as a Pac-12 signal caller. And there are some skill sets. There are some technical aspects of his game, his uh, execution of game plans that needs to kick up a notch or two, as you would expect a veteran quarterback to execute. So, Again, it's really going to take both of them to improve in their own areas and hopefully the gradual improvement of both sides does have them both meeting at a place where you can see this passing game finally taking that next step forward, finally really reaching a point where it's an element that shows up on an opponent's scouting report as a major headache, something that they know they need to contend with. And they're going to have to do it uh, without uh, some players that did enter the transfer portal when I talk about wide receivers in specific. So uh, at at the time that I'm recording this uh, podcast, we know that uh, Johnny Wilson and Jordan Porter are in the the transfer portal, and they already found new homes, Johnny Wilson with Florida State and Jordan Porter with Buffalo – You look at a true freshman wide receiver, Junior Alexander, who played only in two games and didn't have any stats to his name to begin with. Uh, 
and he also entered the transfer portal a few days ago. So there is a somewhat of a depleted group of wide receivers, but the uh, mo- mo- most experienced ones and the most uh, productive ones are indeed coming back. Ricky Paracel had f- 580 receiving yards and four touchdowns. LV Bunkley Shelton, 418 yards, two touchdowns. So I know AC is really going to lean on those two players. Uh, Brian Thompson, the transfer from Utah, did only play in 11 games last season, did battle some injury issues, um, had a very quiet season with 130 yards, but the hope is that he can step up his game in 2022 because I think, especially with the losses of guys like Porter and Wilson, that AC was going to lean even harder on him to be a factor in the passing game. So really curious to see what's going to happen starting in spring practice if this element of the offense can indeed show improvement over 2021. When you look at the uh, at the rushing game, ASU, well, once again, much much like 2020, was really a force to reckon on, on the ground. Uh, they did end up averaging uh, 100, over 195 yards, which is a little less than uh, what they averaged in 2020 over four games of 212 yards. But nonetheless, uh, this was a, a, a rushing game that really more often than not imposed its will. I think that for natural reasons, had to be abandoned at times when the defense would put the put the offense in the hole and the passing game was not able to make up make up the yards, make up the uh, points they needed to do in order for the offense to eventually be more balanced. But that doesn't take anything away from this rushing attack uh, with uh, Rashad White obviously leading the way with just under 1,000 1, yards rushing, 1,006 to be exact, and 15 touchdowns. Uh, quarterback Jaden Daniels uh, really rushed, I think, maybe more than coaches wanted him to, but uh, sometimes the opponent uh, really uh, d- really dictated that. Jaden Daniels, uh, even with all the sacks that he incurred, still was able to rush for 710 net yards, scoring six touchdowns. Uh, Rashad White, as we know, declared for the NFL, and that was expected, but probably wasn't expected to have the number two running back, Chip Trainum who entered the transfer portal, moved back closer to his uh, Akron, Ohio home, will play for Ohio State, and will play at linebacker. So <laughs> I don't know how that experiment is going to work out because I think he's a very talented college running back and somebody that, in theory, did have a future in the, in, in the NFL in that role. But nonetheless, he's at Ohio State, and he's playing on the other side of the ball. But he ended his 2021 season with 402 rushing yards, and six touchdowns. So a lot of ground firepower for ASU is lost at this point, and it's going to be really hard to replenish. Uh, Daniel Ngada is returning as the most experienced running back group of the bunch. He did rush for 309 yards and four touchdowns. So as a number three running back, I think those are definitely respectable numbers. I said all season long that he should have gotten many more reps than the 56 reps that he got over 11 games. Needless to say that he's going to get plenty of opportunities in in, in 2022. And he's going to battle uh, with a pretty impressive running back transfer from Wyoming, Xavier Valaday, who during his career with the Cowboys did rush for over 3,200 3, yards and scored over 20 touchdowns. 
So in terms of getting a veteran presence and a very young running back group, I thought that was a great pickup by the Sun Devils. Uh, we know that uh, running back uh, Tevin White, the four-star high school prospect out of Virginia, is also in the mix over here. Probably at this point with Valaday's addition might be the number three running back on the depth chart. But nonetheless, uh, ASU may not have the same talent level in the offensive backfield as they did have in 2021 or even 2020 for that matter. But I feel that maybe the running back by committee is going to be more prevalent rather than seeing somebody somebody such as Rashad White having just an enormous amount of uh, an enormous amount of carries. If you remember, there was a two-game stretch where Rashad White actually carried the ball 60 times, and that is uh, something that I doubt we're going to see in 2022 with the reps being really more even across the board. And to put a bow on my offensive review, I felt that the offensive line, on the one hand, did a good job by and large in terms of run blocking, but pass blocking, I felt, that left a lot to be desired. And granted, there definitely were some games where ASU was in constant catch-up mode after a slow first half, really trying to rely on a passing game that wasn't that effective to begin with. But I think that also some of the deficiency of of the passing game have to do with the pass blocking. I felt that players such as Ben Scott, for example, really had a hard time in that in that specific department. And this is an offensive line that's losing uh, three starters, Kellen Deesh at left tackle, Henry Haddis at right guard, both exhausting their eligibility, and center Donovan West declaring to, for the NFL draft. So uh, this is uh, one group that's really going to have to make sure that they can shore up uh, in, in, in short order. I expect the transfer portal to land at least two linemen that might end up being starters over here at ASU's front five. Uh, Curious to see if Ben Scott is going to be the center. Uh, He did take some reps in bowl practices. Uh, Jared Bell, who's retiring from football altogether, uh, did actually play center in the the bowl game. I thought he did a fairly good job there. But in terms of who's going to be the future center, I'm really curious to see if that's going to be a returning player or is it going to be somebody from from the transfer portal? And last but not least, the tight ends. I know that uh, Zach Hill, defensive coordinator, always talked about wanting to get the tight ends more involved in the passing game. And even though 20 receptions for 374 yards and two touchdowns for Curtis Hodges aren't eye-popping numbers by any means, I feel that uh, he definitely did take a step forward uh, after showing some flashes in, in, in 2020. And I believe for the first time in a long time, there is a true commitment to involve the tight end more in the passing game at, at ASU. And with uh, somebody like Jalen Conyers leading the charge in, in 2022, I expect uh, that group as a whole to be more and more an integral part of the passing game. But, uh, but again, as we mentioned earlier, we just have to make sure that that passing game, whether it's, running backs, wide receivers, whomever, are just collectively stepping up their game and just being more of a threat to opposing defenses. Moving to the other side of the ball, when you look at the ASU defense, I feel that 
it definitely did come as advertised in terms of their overall performance in 2022. They were consistently in the top three major defensive categories in the Pac-12. They did end the season uh, only yielding just under 21 points a game, uh, just over 130 yards on the ground and 194 yards in the air. Uh, those, those are numbers that we really haven't seen in a while in, in, in Tempe as far as being a stingy group, as far as a group that really showed a lot of bend but not break at points. But overall, the stats are definitely stats you you, you, you can live with. And honestly, if you, if you told me before the season that those were the numbers that this group was going to put up, I definitely think this would be a team that would win the South. But obviously, all the deficiencies we mentioned a few minutes ago on the offense really negated some fine performances by the defense. And honestly, when I look at where the defense really faltered, if I'm looking game by game, I'm sure against Utah, we talked about the 21, 28, I'm sorry, unanswered points in the second half, uh, digging a 28-7 hole for themselves in the home game against Washington State. Those are the two games that I felt that maybe the defense didn't show up for long stretches of the game. But by and large, they definitely kept the Sun Devils in the game almost each and every week. And the offense obviously was not able to really take advantage of that fine performance. And that's why ASU only ended up with eight wins rather than nine or 10 or even 11 for that matter. Um, You you look at performances – such as uh, giving up uh, basically what amounted to a garbage time touchdown in the second half to to BYU, even though that was a loss. That is a game that the defense did all in its power to help ASU win, and the offense did not respond in kind. And then you look at the UCLA win. Not only was it uh, the most important win, at least at that time of the season, but that was a, a game where the defense actually shut out UCLA on their home field. So, Another impressive performance over there. So all in all, it's really hard to be um, critical of the the ASU defense. And it was a unit that I think on paper was really challenged up front because it lost their three-technique defensive tackle, Jermaine Lolay, to a tricep injury before the season even started. And then shortly into the season... Defensive end, Trevez Moore, granted a reserve, but I would say a key reserve on that unit, was sidelined for the season due to a knee injury. And I thought that defensive line coach Robert Rodriguez, again, doing a great job with his group of players over there. And I know the two members of that unit, those tackle DJ Davidson and defensive and uh, Tyler Johnson, who both declared for the NFL draft, are going to be sorely missed next year, but Jermaine Lelay and Travez Moore are coming back. So that's a big boost uh, for, the, for the defense. I think the biggest loss of this side of the ball is linebacker Darren Butler, who did also declare for the NFL draft and maybe one of the more surprising declarations, if you will, in that matter. He only played in 10 games, uh, but still was second in total tackles with, with 68 somebody that is going to leave huge, huge shoes to fill uh, behind him. But I think that one player that is going to able to possibly make sure the drop-off is pretty minimal is freshman Eric Gentry, who showed up on a lot of 
freshman All-American list at the end of the 2021 season. He finished sixth in team tackles with 45 and just a player that has a bright, bright future. Uh, I think that maybe not the surprise of the defense, but one player who definitely had a breakout season was middle linebacker Kyle, Kyle Sole, the local Scottsdale uh, Suara product, did pace the Sun Devils with 88 total tackles, had four pass breakups, eight tackles for loss. Uh, definitely was a force to reckon to reckon with in this ASU defense. He's a player that really patiently waited and waited his turn um, as a key reserve. And I would I would say even going back to the 2020 season, once he was just a every Saturday, almost every down player, uh, he really showed his worth for this ASU defense. So the fact that he's coming back with Eric Gentry, also Merlin Robinson, who had a so-so year, still end up finishing third uh, with in team tackles with 64. I think you have definitely one of the better linebacker groups uh, in in the Pac-12 coming into the 2022 campaign. So with the return of Jermaine Lolay, with the return of Travez Moore, uh, with uh, defensive end uh, Mike, Michael Matus uh, uh, coming back as well, I think that the front seven for the Sun Devils should be in pretty good shape in 2022. And again, I think this is a group that by and large did play very well this past season. The secondary is going to be a whole different story because we knew that uh, one reason why ASU really needs to make the most out of this 2021 season is because they're going to lose all four starters. All of them exhausted their eligibility. Safeties, DeAndre Pierce and Evan Fields and cornerbacks, Jack Jones and Chase Lucas. Uh, I thought that by and large, it was a group that did uh, that did play well throughout the season. You look at the last four games of the year, and they did not give up more than 171 yards in any of those contests. And the one blemish, if you will, from a passing defense perspective, 346 yards yielded to Arizona, was still a convincing win by the Sun Devils facing a Wildcat offense that really wasn't interested in running the ball to begin with. So this secondary definitely has to replenish uh, in in a hurry, and it's probably going to be more with returning players rather than high school prospects, junior college transfers, or even players from the transfer portal. But uh, there's no doubt in my mind that if you're looking for one area of concern on this side of the ball and maybe even on the entire team is can this ASU secondary really ensure that the drop-off in town from 21 to 22 is going to be minimal. You have a very talented cornerback such as Tamarcus Davis, um, Mason Williams, uh, Keon Markham came on really strong just in the last few games of the year, Jordan Clark. Uh, you have uh, Isaiah Johnson, a very talented uh, cornerback that at the time was the highest rated recruit for ASU in, in, in his class and really not given a whole lot of opportunity just because of the enormous depth ahead of him. Is he a player that can break out in 2022? It's obviously disappointing to lose such a promising young player such as Tommy Hill, who maybe didn't see a whole lot of playing time, especially in the second half of the year, but somebody who I felt could be a cornerstone of this ASU secondary, but now ASU is going to have to make do without him. I think when you look at the safety group, it's a little more concerning over there as far as who the players are going to step up in 2022. Sure, you have Kiwan Markham, 
who, in the absence of Evan Fields, which really was more than just a couple of games, I thought filled in really nicely and can be a key player next year for ASU. The question is, who is going to be the starter along alongside of him? And that player could be on the team right now as we speak. That player could be added anytime between now and fall camp. So that's going to be a huge, huge area for ASU to shore up. But again, when I look at the at the Sun Devil defense, I really don't have a whole lot of complaints. It's impossible, obviously, to play perfect in each and every game. But I felt that even in some of the losses for, for, for the Sun Devils, they by and large did play well, maybe not consistently throughout the whole game. But at the same time, when the offense, especially the passing offense, is not able to complement you, is not able to support you on even a semi-consistent basis, I think it makes the job of the defense that much harder. Again, I love the talent coming back in the the front seven, but obviously the defensive backfield and how they can really compensate for the losses of four starters, four proven Pac-12 players is going to be everything in terms of their prospects for the upcoming season. And wrapping up the review of this ASU defense, I think you have to really tip tip your cap to defensive coordinator Antonio Pierce. He was co-defensive coordinator with Marv Lewis, if you recall, in the 2020 season. So 2021 was the first year where he was essentially running the show, if you will. And I thought he did an outstanding job. Sure, he had a lot of talent at his disposal, but nonetheless, I think that he was able to manage that talent really, really well. And the schemes that he came up with each and every week uh, proved by and large to be really, really effective. It's never a given when you have an enormous amount of talent to be successful as a defensive coordinator or even as a position coach. And I think that Antonio Pierce uh, deserves a huge measure of props for the job that he did in 2021. And I think that if nothing else, that should instill some con- some measure of confidence that 2022, especially with the challenges we talked about in the defensive backfield, are not going to be a glaring shortcoming and uh, perhaps something that Antonio Pierce is going to be able to figure out and have this defense maybe not perform uh, apples to apples in terms of the stats they're going to put up in 2022, but nonetheless play at a pretty high level. And wrapping up our discussion on the team's performance in 2021, reviewing the special teams, I thought that freshman punter Eddie Chaplisky really was kind of thrown into the fire in an unexpected situation, being the starting punter after Michael Turk did transfer to Oklahoma prior to the beginning of the season, I thought did a great job for the Sun Devils, averaging over 45 yards a punt, uh, was able to be a very good directional uh, punter when needed, placed a lot of uh, punts inside the 20, had a good deal of punts over over 50 yards, and was anything but uh, a Achilles heel for the special teams group. I think when you look at the place kicking, namely uh, field goal kicker Christian Zendayas, that was a different story altogether. Uh, very inconsistent, even missing many kicks from makeable di- distances, if you will. And the fact that kicker Carter Brown is going to be here in the summer, part of the 2022 class, uh, regarded by many as a top kicker nationally in this class, I think is going to be a huge boost and really make this group a more well-rounded, effective unit. 
in terms of kick return and punt return, uh, DJ Taylor didn't always show sound decision-making, especially in kick returns. And you don't know if this is like a pure issue of coaching someone who maybe came in overconfident into last season. He was prior to the 2021 campaign, a preseason OPAC 12 selection, obviously was a postseason OPAC 12 selection after the 2020 season. And I don't know if there was a unhealthy measure of confidence in his game. And I definitely think it affected him. That's why he lost his return duties in the middle of the season. The last few games, we did see some better performances reminding us what a special weapon he can be. So if he can effectively shake off what took place in the 2021 season, I think he's, he could be much like ASU's punter and kicker, a formidable weapon for the Sun Devils. So this uh, does wrap up our discussion in terms of the micro-review of the 2021 campaign for Arizona State. Now let's talk about the macro-review. More importantly, what transpired off the field? How has it affected the program to date? And how do I expect any implications to really take their toll, not only this year, but in years to come? So when you talk about that June 16th date, a date that I don't think many ASU fans will ever, ever forget as long as they're following the team, the date where the news came out that ASU was being investigated for alleged recruiting violations that took place in the calendar year 2021, but also during the 2020 calendar year as well, Uh, namely the biggest allegations are during a recruiting dead period that was instituted because of the pandemic, which more or less started, at least in the U.S. in March of 2020, uh, that ASU was were actually hosting uh, recruits, uh, both from the 2020 class and the 2021 class, over a period of several months. And that obviously, if proven true, is going to be a major violation, a level one violation in NCAA terms, and something that already three assistant coaches for Arizona State, as mentioned, have been put on admin leave, uh, paying the price uh, for that and are not going to be back on the staff. And now the only question is, when does the NCAA investigation wrap up? What are the sanctions that are going to be imposed? But more importantly, does ASU, and I mentioned this months and months ago, are they going to try to weather the storm and do even more self-imposed sanctions if you count putting the three assistant coaches at admin leave not to return to the staff as the beginning of their self-imposed sanctions? Now, I know there's been a huge point of contention among the fan base whether university president Dr. Michael Crow did act in a correct manner uh, offering to the NCAA, that measure of goodwill, for lack of a better term, putting those three coaches on admin leave, signaling to the NCAA that they're fully willing to cooperate uh, versus maybe waiting for what should be a long, drawn-out process to take its course, and only then 
take action. And I'm not here really to justify what Michael Crow is or is not doing in regard to this, because we still don't know what the final outcome is going to be. I know that some folks contend that when you put three assistant coaches on admin leave, two of them just days into the fall camp, you're in a sense just writing off the 2021 season. You're creating an an absolute significant adverse impact on the season itself. And we're not even talking about recruiting yet because the 2022 class for ASU, as we know, is very thin when it comes to the number of high school and junior college transfers. And that's to date right now as of mid-January. And I don't expect the February signing period to suddenly land a plethora of players uh, from this class. I think ASU has gone pretty heavy in the in the transfer portal and will continue to definitely do so, uh, probably adding somewhere in the neighborhood of 12 to 14 players from that transfer portal being, in a sense, the lion's share of the 2022 recruiting class. So those uh, preemptive moves, if you will, by ASU to put the three coaches on admin leave are really designed to soften the blow, if you will, that the NCAA is about to really hand over to ASU. But again, possible self-imposed sanctions as a postseason ban in the 2022 season, reducing the size of the recruiting class, reducing the number of visits that prospects can take over here at ASU, reducing the number of evaluation days that the coaches can have uh, not only later on in the 2022 year, but also during the spring evaluation period, which is a very crucial uh, time frame in any recruiting class. I think that, and I held that belief for months now, I think this is something that ASU is absolutely going to offer in terms of additional uh, proactive actions on their part uh, just to see if the NCAA is willing to accept those offerings, for lack of a better term, and really not feel the need uh, to further hammer ASU. Now, the question is, does is the NCAA, let's say right now in the middle of January, willing to accept such measures from ASU if they were to become officially pen to paper, or is ASU really, quote-unquote, stuck waiting for a long investigation process, which is nowhere near over from the NCAA's point of view, uh, something that I don't feel is going to be wrapped up at least until April, May. Uh, As we sit here right now, ASU has, I'm sorry, the NCAA has not conducted interviews with any current ASU staff, and that is believed to be the last step in their investigation. They already talked to some former staff members, undoubtedly uh, the uh, couple whistleblowers that are really uh, responsible for the NCAA being uh, exposed to these allegations, if you will. Obviously, the NCAA also did interview uh, several of the prospects that are part of these uh, allegations, part of these impermissible recruiting visits during the recruiting dead period. So the last step, as I mentioned, for the NCAA is to talk to the ASU staffers. And I could probably understand from their point of view that they're not really 
interested in listening, let alone accepting any self-imposed sanctions by ASU before they had a chance to talk to all the Arizona State staff members that they have on their list to talk to. And again, uh, that's something that's not starting tomorrow, and that's not something that's going to wrap up from start to finish uh, in a matter of just a couple weeks or even a little more than that. So it still might be a long process ahead of us. And needless to say that not only is your 2022 class being severely affected by this, but the 2023 class with these sanctions is going to be heavily impacted as well. Some might even speculate as a 2024 class directly or indirectly uh, also suffer the consequences of ASU's actions. You know, when it comes to the postseason ban, uh, it's basically maybe kind of implying that may, not much is expected from from ASU uh, in terms of reaching a noteworthy bowl, if you will. And look, I mean, being in the Las Vegas Bowl was great, uh, being ranked as a third best team in the Pac-12 and, and going to that postseason contest you know, it's definitely, I would say, a point of pride. But I think with maybe with all the personnel losses that ASU as a su- suffering going into the 2022 season with some unsolved uh, issues or question marks that still uh, linger quite a bit in terms of the passing game, in terms of the defensive backfield, is ASU just willing to just take the blow if you will, of just not playing uh, in in a ball game, knowing that it's not going to be as prestigious as, as the Las Vegas Bowl, and just knowing that that's just a necessary evil that needs to take place in order not to leave it up to the NCAA to impose their own sanctions on the team. And another big factor that's uh, really worth discussing is going to be the future of Herm Edwards, the future of Antonio Pierce, who's not only the defensive coordinator, but also the recruiting coordinator for the Sun Devils. Uh, do the findings of, of the NCAA include some ramification towards them? Because the problem is if the NCAA does come down with its findings and does not accept any self-imposed sanctions by ASU that do not include the end of employment for Herm Edwards and or Antonio Pierce, uh, if the NCAA is steadfast and resolved in making sure that those two individuals don't coach ASU in 2022, you would hope that decision would be done as early as possible in the calendar year so ASU would have at least a sliver of a chance to get an adequate replacement. But if the NCAA decides that th- those two individuals uh, should not be coaching uh, at ASU for the 2022 season, but only reaching that conclusion in the summer, let alone deep in the summer, that puts ASU at a huge, huge disadvantage uh, because scrambling for a head coach, scrambling for somebody who's not only a defensive coordinator but recruiting coordinator is definitely something that's easier said than done. And maybe in a sense just ends the 2022 campaign before it even started. So that's something that uh, is really worth following as the calendar year progresses to see 
uh, what happens with the process itself. And I think it's anybody's guess as to if the NCAA is going to be really steadfast on not only the self-imposed sanction that I met, that I mentioned, postseason ban, reduction in the number of visitors and visits, reduction of the number of n- days that coaches can go out and evaluate prospects, but also having their their head coach and or their the recruiting coordinator uh, not being able to be part of the staff, that is uh, going to be maybe the biggest blow of them all if it did come to that point. You know, and some speculate, you know, does somebody like Antonio Pierce that the NFL has been courting for the last couple of years, not forever, does he even stick around and wait for those findings, which are almost guaranteed not to be too kind to him, and really receive the brunt, receive the criticism while in Tempe, as opposed to maybe receiving that criticism while he has a job, a job in the NFL, like something that he, you know, has probably aspired in the last couple of years to begin with. So that is something that can really change a lot when it, when it comes to the dynamics of the ASU staff. And obviously I don't expect Herm Edwards to be the head coach at ASU beyond the 2022 season. But the question is, does he even get to coach the 2022 season? Again, that's really more contingent on the NCAA rather than ASU deciding to, to cut the cord, uh, much, much earlier um, in the process. I think maybe there was a time where Michael Crow uh, was entertaining serious thoughts of doing that, but really with the NCAA investigation moving at the snail pace that it is, which, again, is not unexpected at all, there really wasn't any compelling reason, I guess, to to act uh, in such a swift manner when it comes to major staffing decisions which probably draws the ire of the faction of Sun Devil fans who believe that even the three assistant coaches that have been put on leave, as much as the damning evidence was stacked up against them, shouldn't ASU waited at at a minimum after until the 2021 season to take any action on them. So it's really a complex matter, as you can tell by now. And I don't know if there's any right answers or wrong answers in terms of the actions that University President Michael Crow has taken to date and the self-imposed sanctions, which I think are almost inevitable to come. It's just a matter of when, not if. Uh, do those satisfy the NCAA? Does the ASU feel that they need to go pretty far with those self-imposed sanctions just to make sure they can close the book shut on any possible future action by the NCAA? Or do they feel that they did quite a bit to already damage the 2021 season and the 2022 recruiting class because they put those three assistant coaches on leave so early in the investigation process and really so late into the preseason? Like I said, Prentice Gill and Chris Hawkins were put on admin leave literally three days into fall camp. So you're talking about this absolutely derailing your preparation for the season. So ASU might feel that they made pretty big concessions to date and that the level of concessions from here on out maybe does not have to be all that great. But on the other hand, I know it's a stating the obvious, the, the more severe your self-imposed sanctions are, 
the better chance you have the NCAA to basically accept those actions, really be hands-off in terms of leveling additional uh, sanctions on the program and just uh, letting ASU uh, suffer the consequences of its own actions, pun intended. Uh, One thing's for sure that this definitely, when it comes to the NCAA investigation, calls into question the whole direction of Ray Anderson with the hiring of Herm Edwards, the direction he had for the program, I should say, the new leadership model, the pro model, however you want to term that organizational approach. And I don't know if that organizational approach necessarily has been a failure, but it's really easy to point to the fact that the approach that Ray Anderson did try to take with the hiring of Herb Edwards and, and the subsequent hirings that took place of the football staff didn't really result in any success, let alone the resounding success that Ray Anderson was probably looking for. And this is not to imply that Ray Anderson's job is definitely on the line, but is it coming under a lot of scrutiny? Is it coming a lot of, under a lot of criticism because of what's happening with the football program right now? And as we know that aside from men's basketball, this football program is not not only responsible for sustaining itself financially, but also supporting financially uh, 95% of the sports out there out there for the Sun Devils. So this can really can create a vicious uh, domino effect if now the football revenues as a result of these self-imposed sanctions to come um, are really going to take quite the toll on ASU. Arizona State is obviously an athletic program like all the athletic programs around the country that during the pandemic has suffered financial losses in the tens of millions that it was able to sustain. And as we slowly and more importantly, hopefully get out of this pandemic and any effects it can have on the various athletic programs, now ASU is still saddled uh, with this NCAA investigation that can definitely affect the football program financially quite a bit. So there's there's a lot that Ray Anderson really has to explain, really has to answer for uh, once once the sanctions do take place, because it's going to set the football program a few years back. And this is not me trying to come out with uh, a very hyperbolic headline or anything like that. I'm just really talking from a realistic point of view. Yes, the self-imposed sanctions will affect right away the 2022 season and the 2023 recruiting class. But you can't really say that that's where the start and the finish of the sanction impact takes place, because this this can definitely have implications for the 2023 class when I think there's a good chance that Herm Edwards and maybe a good deal of his assistants are no longer, no longer going to be employed by ASU. And anytime you start over, there are going to be some growing pains. And if you are handcuffing coaches, especially in terms of their off-campus evaluation for the 2023 class, that by default also affects your efforts for the 2024 class because it's not like the coaches out there at the various high schools and junior colleges are just a one-track mind thinking about the current recruiting class. They're always recruiting ahead as well. So you really have somewhat of a snowball 
effect over here that's not really confined to one year or just to one uh, recruiting class. So if folks are really predicting some measure of gloom and doom for the program starting in 2022 and probably spilling over to 2023, maybe even 2024, I don't think that's chicken little. I don't think that's a far-fetched statement, a self-fulfilling prophecy, or just trying to justify the anti-Ray Anderson or the anti-Hurm Edwards opinion that Jimmy have had for years and years now. I think it's a plausible theory that this program is going to be hurt, uh, not only this year, but maybe for the next couple of years to come as well. Because again, self-imposed sanctions with the seemingly inevitable change at, at, at head coach and trying to land a quality head coach to replace Herm Edwards that knows what they're going to be dealing with, at least for the first two years of their Tempe tenure, you know, that, that creates a whole different and significant challenge in itself. So I feel that this ASU football program is going to be licking its wounds uh, for the next few years. Base case scenario, maybe you're thinking that your wound requires 10 feet of gauze tape when, in fact, maybe just needed just one large Band-Aid. In other words, that your pessimistic outlook doesn't fully materialize when it's all said and done. But there's no doubt in my mind that the football program is going to take a step back in 2022 and very possibly into 2023 or maybe even 2024 as well. And uh, that's just one of those brace for impact uh, moments if, if you're an ASU fan and see how well uh, this athletic department leadership can really withstand what I expect to be a severe blow to the football program. And speaking of programs that are right now going through some tough times and maybe with not the brightest of futures, let's turn our attention to the hardwood and the Sun Devil basketball program. Mama Mavis, oh mama, they try my patience. It's gone, who was left to save us? We mourn, I'm praying for my neighbors. They say the devil's at work and is calling favors. You say I'm dangerous, I speak for the nameless. I fly with the vultures, I be with them bangers. If change don't come, then the change won't come. If the bands make them If you go back to the 2021 ASU basketball roster, that was the group of players that many, including yours, truly believed was the most talented one in the Bobby Hurley era in Tempe. The aspirations of not only capturing the Pac-12 championship, but also going deeper than many other ASU teams in recent memory have gone during the NCAA tournament were all dashed as the team did finish with a losing record. Granted, you can talk about the effects of the COVID season, but as I said many times before in this podcast and in other forums, that college basketball as a whole was affected by this pandemic, which is still going on as we speak, obviously. But for some reason, it looks like Arizona State, more than any other Pac-12 program and probably 90% of the college teams all across the nation really 
was affected more by the pandemic. Now, there were clear team chemistry issues, which we addressed again on this podcast previously, also on my website, devilsdigest.com, that really prevented ASU from realizing its full potential. So Bobby Hurley, I wouldn't say reinvented himself when it came to recruiting and just putting together the team. But when you look at the 2021 season where you landed a pair of five stars, Josh Christopher obviously is playing as we speak with the Houston Rockets, was a first-round pick, number 21 overall. And uh, Marcus Bagley, who was injured for a good portion of the 2021 season and injured even more in this current season, and we'll talk about that in a second. But those two five-star incoming freshmen, along with proven returning players such as Remy Martin, Alonzo Verge, Kimani Lawrence, Jalen Graham, all had the makings of not only an outstanding starting five, but by far the deepest roster that Bobby Early has had at ASU. Now, it's not uncommon for any college basketball team these days to go through a major overhaul, but you can make the argument that was probably a little too excessive when it came to Arizona State because right now you have nine fresh new faces on the team. And the way Bobby Hurley went about recruiting, and and granted, recruiting during the pandemic has been quite the challenge, again, not only for the Sun Devils, but for everybody else. Well, what Bobby Hurley did, he made a very good use, again, on paper, with the transfer portal, uh, bringing in uh, a lot of players who are actually the leading scorers in the respective schools. When you talk about Marion Jackson, Mac, Mac Player of the Year at, the, at Toledo, when you talk about DJ Horn, leading scorer at Illinois State, when you talk about Jay Heath, leading scorer at Boston College, uh, one of the better uh, freshmen two seasons ago in the ACC, arguably the best conference in all of college basketball, this approach seemed to be the antithesis, if you will, to what Bobby Hurley just did a year before. And instead of bringing the bright, shiny five-star players to the program, brought players that may have had their chip on the shoulder wanting to prove themselves now in a bigger stage like the Pac-12, or even a player like Jay Heath, who actually played in a great conference like the ACC, but in such a bad Boston College team, wanted to have a stage where he cannot only show himself as a prolific scorer, but be part of a better program. But overall, he just felt that all the team chemistry issues, and I'm not saying Bobby Hurley uh, isn't clear of fault, Um, having that team culture to begin with, but I gave Bobby Hurley credit on many occasions for just having a different recruiting approach that brought in a different type of player to Arizona State. And even the returning players, guys like Kimani Lawrence and and Marcus Bagley, uh, for example, were never really part of the negative team culture that ASU had just the season before. So, I wasn't alone, and I'm not saying this to make myself feel better or anything, thinking that Arizona State, even though, again, major overhaul with the roster and whatnot, still brought some good returning players in the fold, but also had really quality additions. And you also talk about a freshman like Enoch Bauchi, a five-star center from Canada, which was supposed to be a major shot in the arm for an ASU front court that was 
an obvious Achilles heel the, the the season before. You also brought a player like Alonzo Gaffney, who just a couple years ago played at Ohio State, played at a junior college in Florida, was also supposed to be a strong addition to the ASU front line. So while replacing so many players on the ASU roster was really necessary, again, just because of the lack of cohesiveness and the fact that the team was absolutely disjointed, I really did like the approach that Bobby Hurley took in building this team. Bobby Hurley also had to really replace all of his assistant coaches, so he just felt it was just a fresh start for this program. I mean, again, you did definitely had some key players returning in Kimani Lawrence and Marcus Bagley in Jalen Graham, but you just felt that the new pieces coming in could really turn around this program. I thought this is a program that could have could finish fourth uh, in, in the Pac-12, definitely overall in the upper echelon of the conference. And then the season started. And there were obviously a lot of issues um, early on. Um, you know, you talk about an absolute heartbreaking loss to UC Riverside at home where the winning basket uh, beats the buzzer from about uh, not even mid-court, I think almost like three-quarters of a court shot. You talk about a very close loss on the road to San Diego State. Granted, a quality program, but definitely a game that Arizona State should have won. Bobby Hurley always prides himself on having a very challenging schedule. And I thought what happened this season, more probably than any other season that Bobby Hurley had, that approach really came back to bite him. You go play for the Battle for Atlantis tournament in the Bahamas, and you have three consecutive losses to Baylor, a team that was number one up until last week, uh, to Syracuse, and to Loyola Chicago, the last two teams uh, being programs that seemingly year in and year out are part of the field of 68. So you say, okay, um, now Pac-12 schedule starts, as we know, with a new format, playing 20 games in the league. You actually get to play two games early on in December. And here comes an absolute horrendous home loss to Washington State by the score of 51-29, to something that looks much more like a football score than a basketball one. ASU scores, if you recall, 10 points in the first half. Ironically, only trailed eight points at halftime. But uh, this was a game where there's not a whole lot to glean from. He just absolutely just burned the game film and just move on. It looks like ASU was able to do just that because even though Oregon is a team that started out in the preseason top 25, but as the year has gone on, doesn't even resemble um, a team that had so many lofty preseason expectations. ASU goes into Eugene and for the first time in Matt Knight Arena uh, is able to squeak out a 69-67 win. They come back at home against Grand Canyon, a game that was really much anticipated because it was a series that, as we know, hasn't been played for many, many years. When ASU did play there during the 2021 season, had a uh, miracle three-point corner shot by Randy Martin to squeak out a win, and a very gritty uh, performance against the the Lopes uh, did net ASU a 67-62 win. Maybe the most impressive win of the entire year was actually going into Creighton uh, in, in Omaha and edging out another close win, 58-57. to 57. 
Now, ASU did get a taste of its own medicine, plays another very challenging team in San Francisco, and loses by one point when they cannot make their free throws down the stretch to the score of 66 to 65. So this uh, five and net record uh, by the Sun Devils, as you can tell, does involve some heartbreak, does involve some games where they absolutely got dominated by, by their opponent. And you were just curious to see, okay, now that the meat of the Pac-12 schedule was going to begin the first week of January, what kind of ASU team were we going to get? Because honestly, I would say that going into middle of December, you maybe started to feel a little good about this ASU program. Maybe, maybe the pieces were finally coming together. Maybe all the new faces were finally on the same page with the returning players. And then comes the game January 2nd at California where ASU trails ticker to ticker, gets absolutely dominated by the tune of 74 to 50 at Cal. And granted, this is a much better Cal team than we've saw just in the last two, three years. But nonetheless, to lose a Pac-12 game on the road by 24 points, maybe you can somewhat live with that when you talk about one of the top 10 teams that the Pac-12 has right now in both LA schools and Arizona. But for that to happen at the hands of Cal is is definitely disheartening. And you had uh, two games uh, postponed by the LA schools because of COVID issues over there, and then ASU, because of their own COVID issues, had to uh, postpone their home games against U of A and Utah. So as it stands right now, ASU, for the first time since December 19th, will finally return uh, to the court this Saturday, January 15th, hosting Colorado, uh, another team that is playing, I would say, somewhat uh, above expectations. So the road uh, really doesn't get uh, any easy for ASU because a lot of Pac-12 teams like Cal, like Colorado, are are playing at a higher level. Um, You have those games looming large against both LA schools and your in-state rival Arizona, all three uh, programs right now in the top 10 and are going to be more than just formidable challenges down the road for ASU. So where did everything go wrong? Um, I think that being on the same page when you have so many newcomers on the team is something that we've got a sense that maybe wasn't that much of an issue just because of the preseason narrative. I know they had a great scrimmage against New Mexico State where everything was absolutely clicking. And I know there's only only so much stock you can put in such elements, but you just never got the sense talking to Bobby Hurley, talking to the players that the team coming together in short order was even going to be an issue. But when you look at a five and eight record, there's obviously something to be said about that aspect maybe being more severe than a lot of folks thought it was going to be. Now, you go back to the COVID issue, and it's not only really postponing game after game for ASU. And again, it's it's not only ASU's fault, as we know. I mean, heck, they had a, they had a game that against Florida A&M that was supposed to be played on December 21st that didn't even get postponed by COVID, got postponed because of a major elect- electrical outage on campus. But 
COVID really affected two key players in Jalen Graham, the returning forward, and uh, Jay Heath, the guard transfer from Boston College early on. And Jay Heath maybe slowly but surely was able to get into the groove of things. But uh, Jalen Graham is one player that you can definitely point to that has not been himself, has not played anywhere close to what was a promising freshman year, I I thought, in the 2019-20 season. And even last season, which was rough on all the ASU players as a group and even individually, I thought that Graham was able to sow some flashes here and there. But uh, to me, he's been an absolute uh, disappointment. And in the last game against Cal, played only 10 minutes, all of them in the first half, did not see the court again, even though uh, junior college transfer Alonzo Gaffney, Gaffney, another forward, another key player uh, of the ASU front court, was out due to COVID. Uh, you have also another returning player in guard, Luther Muhammad, a transfer from Ohio State, which uh, did have to sit out last season, not because of transfer, but really just because of a shoulder injury, has never been himself since the beginning of the season. But uh, Marion Jackson, the point guard, a player who I thought was going to do a pretty good job making ASU fans forget about Remy Martin transferring to Kansas, uh, has also been a disappointing player for the Sun Devils. Yes, he did have the wrist injury early on in the season, which took him a long time to finally heal from. But uh, it's really been rough uh, just having him play at the level that he has been playing up until now for the first 13 games. And that has definitely held back the Sun Devils. Uh, The most pleasant surprise has been DJ Horn, which I'll admit, coming from Illinois State, I didn't think uh, was really going to make all that much of an impact. Maybe a spark plug off the bench, and he has been uh, the most consistent player for ASU to date. And see him lead the Sun Devil in scoring in 13.7 points per game is something I don't think a lot of us did expect uh, to see, even though we're halfway through the season. I think that uh, Kimani Lawrence uh, has been an absolute rock-solid player for ASU, and I know he's a player that sometimes draws a lot of controversy Uh, just because his first three years in Tempe were not anything to write home about. But I thought the way he performed in the latter half of last season really created, I think, a nice springboard for him going coming into this season. He's averaging uh, just over 11 points a game. And I mentioned earlier the injury to Marcus Bagley, who only played in three games this year, had a lingering knee injury from, from the preseason, it looks like that he was able to overcome it when the season actually tipped off, but uh, he's been sidelined ever since uh, for just several, several games, I guess 10 right now, if my math is right, and with really uh, no end in sight. Um, he has a knee condition that is not going to be operated on, and the rehab, the physical therapy of that ailment just has not allowed him to return to the court. And sure, I think it's a great point of contention for Sun Devil fans that are questioning how come a knee injury, which on the one hand is not serious enough to be operated on, cannot already be healed and ready to go with literally two months 
of rehab and treatment. So the absence of Bagley obviously really, really has been a huge, huge issue. I mean, we talked about, you know, again, a lot of the newcomers like like Marianne Jackson and Jay Heath really not playing up to the potential. Luther Muhammad uh, really not providing a whole lot, especially uh, offensively. Um, and even um, a guy like Enoch Bauchia, the freshman, um, really had a rough, rough start uh, to, to the beginning of the season. I think has shown a lot of promise in recent games and I think really should be meriting much more playing time than he's getting right now, especially with the struggles of Graham and Alonzo Gaffney now coming back from his uh, bout with COVID. You kind of wonder what kind of shape uh, he's, he's going to be in after a pretty lengthy layoff. So there's a lot of issues uh, right now with this Arizona State basketball team and I don't think it's really going on on the limb saying that this is not going to be a team that's going to be part of the NCAA tournament unless they go on some kind of miraculous run in the Pac-12 tournament in mid-March in Las Vegas and able to actually capture that tournament and enter the field of 68 in that manner. But overall, uh, it's really hard to see much promise uh, for, for, the, for this team just based on the results in the first 13 games based on the fact that you still have six games against the likes of the L.A. schools and Arizona uh, coming up. You still have to face a very good Colorado team, and that's going to be your first game after nearly 30 days of layoff. And now that you need to make up all these Pac-12 games, and there's not that many dates in the calendar, how much does fatigue, how much does wear and tear really, really, really come into question? So it really is an uphill battle for this ASU basketball team, a team which, again, I wasn't in the minority, I don't think, that really thought had the chance to turn around an extremely disappointing 2021 season. And right now, the prospects of them even having a winning season to begin with really do not look great unless this team absolutely shocks all of us and plays us out of their mind the rest of this Pac-12 schedule. But the long layoff, first and foremost, really doesn't do any favors for this team. As the saying goes, the road to hell is full of good intentions, and I really felt that Bobby Hurley was pushing all the right buttons in the offseason. He said time and time again that he was more than pleased with the makeup character-wise of this team that he felt that this would give him optimism for this 21-22 season. And the sample size right now is sizable enough to say that this approach, unfortunately, did not work well. Again, you never know if there's going to be some kind of absolute miraculous turnaround uh, that might shock all of us, but now that you're contending with a long layoff, which again wasn't 100% your fault, does that make the journey to really having a 180 degree turnaround of the team that much more challenging? I would say absolutely yes. So curious to see if ASU can show some improvement in the 17 remaining Pac-12 games they have, and that's assuming that they can, with the rescheduling, actually play all 17 games. But I guess guess the next week or two is really going to tell us 
a lot if ASU was able to turn the corner or if all the issues that we've seen up until now, all the players that really have disappointed and not played up to their potential, do they really just continue to have more of the same in the months of January, February, and March? So much like ASU football, when you talk about a projection for the next few months, or maybe in football's case for much later on in the fall of 2022, it's easy to say why the outlook is grim. But I think when you bring really facts to the table, when you talk about objective elements that are hampering the program, you know that the level of realism is much higher than just down straight pessimism about what you project for the program. We're going to talk a lot in the weeks and months to come about both programs. Are they going to continue in the course that we kind of laid out in this podcast and is really a lot of the events that are going to take place this year are going to be par for the course, or is there going to be perhaps maybe some unexpected uh, turn of events and either program or maybe even both actually perform at a higher level than expected. All that discussion is going to take place on my website, devilsdigest.com. If you're not a premium subscriber, I, I would definitely invite you to come and be part of that discussion, which I'm sure is going to be very, very lively among Sun Devil fans just like yourself. And that will do it for this episode of the Devil's Junkies podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I hope you have a great weekend. I was living in a devil town. I didn't know it was a devil town. Oh, Lord, it really brings me down about the devil town.